Good morning again. Uh, again, if I haven't met you, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you this morning. It's an honor to be preaching from God's Word. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Philippians. Uh, this is the second to last sermon, um, and we've been walking through this epistle of joy, as it were. What does it look like to rejoice in the Lord, uh, regardless of circumstance? And this passage is certainly in line with that main point of the book of Philippians. Uh, in part because, uh, and I think that it's a critical passage for us today. Um, as you heard Adam read the passage, there is that verse that is often quoted. Um, you may have it memorized. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. So that's, that's at the heart of our passage, and it's really important because we're in the middle of an anxious culture. Um, no matter who you talk to, whether you listen to uh, the news media, whether you listen to uh, mental health counselors um, and, and have them describe what their patients are working through, whether you look at statistics of kind of nationwide surveys and what people are wrestling with, we are in an anxiety-ridden culture. We've been moving from crisis to crisis, both culturally and individually. We are addicted to crisis in some ways. And that's at least in part because crisis sells. It's, I'm not just talking about media uh, in the 24-hour news cycle, um, although that's certainly a part of it. Uh, crisis is exciting. It gets people to click on things. And if your ad revenue is based upon the number of clicks, then it would behoove you as a media institution to develop a whole lot of links for people to click to talk about crisis. Uh, but it's not just about media. It really is the whole commercial environment in which we find ourselves. Think about the commercials that you've seen, uh, the, the latest vacation commercial. Um, that talks about this paradise place that you need to get out of. And you see what that commercial is doing is it's creating a problem in your life. Your life is not paradise. Paradise is over here. You need to leave where you are and go get there. Or whatever commercial is trying to sell, whatever product or uh, uh, toy is being sold, marketers do well when they establish a problem in your life. Your life is incomplete without this thing. So in the commercial environment within which we find ourselves, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to try to sell things in commerce and commercial uh, enterprises is a good thing. It's a way of working, of cultivating. But it's interesting that we don't, you know, I'd love to see a commercial that says, just kind of pops up on whatever screen you're watching on that says, hey, guess what, you're fine. Just keep on keeping on. You don't need anything. You, don't, you just don't see commercials like that. As a result, the world around us is in many ways, selling us anxiety. And we're buying it. So into this world, it's good to remember that as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Anxiety's been around for a long time. And the Apostle Paul writes something that's critical and helpful about how the gospel touches every part of our lives, including the things that we are concerned about. And so today, uh, Paul is applying the gospel, in fact, to a particular situation. He gives us some practical help for what it means to be a Christian. And the way he does it is important. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the crisis that Paul is entering into. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time looking at Paul's antidote for this crisis. And then we're going to consider at the end uh, what it looks like as a community to drink the antidote that Paul is holding out for us. So first, let's look at the crisis uh, briefly. Uh, Paul begins in verse 2 in our passage. Um, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Suntuche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
So we're brought into this crisis that's happened in the church of Philippi. These two women, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, are in a disagreement that's affecting the church. Uh, we don't know much about them. We don't know, for example, whether they were formerly leaders in the church or whether they were simply influential women. I do think that it's probable that they were formal leaders in the church because Paul refers to them as co-laborers, as fellow workers uh, for the cause of the gospel. But we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that the conflict between them, uh, conflict in the church is never isolated, and certainly with uh, two influential women. And there's three things that I want to point out as we set up the context for Paul's teaching here. Uh, First thing is that it's notable that Paul's expectation is that these women in the church are mature enough to hear the word that Paul gives. It's unique that Paul calls out these women by name. There's a story, uh, there's a situation in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 where a man is caught in sexual immorality of a very, uh, of a particularly uh, bad type, being mindful of the audience here. Um, And he doesn't even call that guy out by name. But here, He addresses these two women, these two influential women, by name. And so, to observe, he expects the church and these women to be mature enough to receive this word. These aren't women who Paul expects who will react defensively. Oh, Paul, how dare you? This isn't a church that Paul expects to engage with this situation with impatience. Oh, get him out of here. Come on, guys. Paul expects them to be mature enough to engage with this word. These are not cantankerous old ladies in the church. They're influential, godly women who are in the middle of what was probably a substantive disagreement. Again, we don't know what, we're dis- what they're disagreeing about. But this, it appeared to be a disagreement of substance that was affecting the church. The second thing that we observe is that Paul doesn't take sides. Just interesting. He doesn't say, Euodia, she's right. He doesn't say, Sintuke, she's right. He entreats both of them personally. Please, sisters, for the love of God, agree. To have the same mind, Paul calls back uh, to chapter 2 where he encourages, he, he, he teaches the church that you know, Christ gave everything, set everything aside, so you should have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In humility, count others more important than yourself. So that is in the background here when Paul says to these women, please, I entreat you. I entreat you, Yodia, I entreat you, Sintuche, please agree in the Lord. And third thing to point out is that reconciliation is going to be a community project. Paul asks the church to get involved, to help these two women. He speaks warmly of the church and of these women and says, help one another. Because conflict will happen and conflict is never isolated. Resolution and unity is a community project. He invites the church to help them, and this sets the context for what is to come because Paul goes on to give a series of encouragements to the Philippians in verses 4 through 9 with an emphasis on the character of the kind of community that will be able to engage helpfully with this conflict and conflicts like it. The kind of Christian and the Christian posture with which a person is able to engage in disagreements like this uh, helpfully in a way that's marked by a mature, God-centered peace rather than anxiety and disunity. And so to move on to the, to the, the antidote that Paul provides, let's move on to verses 4 and following. Paul touches on, in this section, some of the central aspects of the Christian life and of Christian character. He begins by saying, rejoice. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, 
I will say rejoice. So the first thing that we see right off the bat, two things jump off the page. First, Paul is being particularly emphatic. Rejoicing is really important to Paul. He had begun chapter 3 with, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. And here he's already repeating himself when he says rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats himself again. Again, I will say, rejoice. For Paul, rejoicing is a central aspect of the Christian life. It is a defining characteristic of a Christian. You can get a lot of other things right, Paul says. But if you don't have joy, you are missing the kingdom of God. He writes in Romans chapter 14, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The second thing that jumps off the page is that this joy cannot be based upon current circumstances. Cannot be, the way that Paul talks about it. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and then he says the one word that drills to the marrow. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. It reminds me of when Jesus is asked the question of, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, mind, and strength. And then he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor. And everyone said, oh, I can do that. As yourself. I can love my neighbor. But do I love my neighbor as myself? Similar here, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, let's rejoice in the Lord. Always. Paul is not an armchair theologian speculating about what joy might look like in adverse circumstances. We're told in Acts chapter 16 that Paul had been beaten uh, and had been thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, and that he and Silas were told in Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And this is in jail in Philippi. This is the, where Paul is writing this letter from. So he's not writing to the Philippians, rejoice always, as though he's sitting in some office pontificating about joy. He knows what he's talking about. So what kind of joy is Paul talking about here? Consider for a moment what it's not. This is, firstly, it's not superficial joy that only manifests itself when things are going well. My mind goes to another uh, uh, one of Jesus' words where Jesus describes love. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what good is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. I tell you, you need to love your enemies. Here, Paul does something similar. It's almost as if you can hear Paul saying, what good is it to you if you only rejoice when things are going well? Sinners rejoice when things are going well. I tell you, rejoice no matter what's happening, and perhaps even especially when things circumstantially are not going your way. Paul's not talking about superficial joy, which only manifests when things are going well. It's also not, Paul's not talking about a joy, uh, a find the silver lining in any situation kind of joy, right? Paul never says, look around. Things aren't as bad as you think they are. Just focus on the good things and take joy in that. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say, it could be worse rejoicing that. That's not what he says. It's also not a, one day it's going to be great, so just grin and bear it for right now. As though he's lifting them out of the present moment and telling them to live in the future hope. He doesn't remove them from the present moment. He says, here and now, rejoice in the Lord. Now listen, it's not bad to rejoice when things are going well. It's not bad to look for and celebrate the silver lining in situations. It's also not bad to think about our future hope. Paul has just talked a whole lot about our future hope. 
Those are wonderful things, but it's important to notice that that's not the kind of rejoicing that Paul's talking about here. He lifts their minds and hearts heavenward and says, your joy shouldn't be focused out there, but in the Lord. Right now, here, today, the Lord is with you. Rejoice in him. When you think about what Paul's been doing, he's been pointing the Philippians to the God who is there, the God who loves them, the God who sent his spirit to be with them. There is this deep and abiding sense of the presence of God, the love of God, the providence of God that runs beneath the fabric of our lives and provides the foundation for the life of the Christian. If joy is based upon current circumstances, if it depends at all on how things are going, then that joy is only ever going to be accessible to some, if we're honest. Because life in a fallen world is hard. And it's marked by suffering. This is particularly important for the oft-persecuted Christians in Philippi. It's almost as though Paul anticipates this objection, though, as if he's anticipating them sitting there thinking, how can we possibly rejoice in these circumstances, Paul? So he says, rejoice in the Lord, always. We have all things, Paul says. God has given us Christ. We have been made co-heirs with Christ of all things, and we have his very presence with us. This should cause us great rejoicing. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We have all that we need. So you see, this is not Paul saying to the Philippian church, you guys just smile more. This is Paul saying rejoice in the Lord. So first he says rejoice. And then second he says be reasonable. Rejoice, be reasonable. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So you see what Paul's doing here. Rather than leaving rejoicing simply in the realm of the inward life. Of course, rejoicing is in many ways an inward reality. But Paul draws it outward. It's not meant to be lived as an inward thing only. It should affect, your joy in the Lord should affect your relationships with all those around you. He uses a word here that could also be translated gentleness. So let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known by all. It, it was sometimes applied, this word, to someone who is an authority who demonstrated justice and leniency. Uh, for example, if you, see a, if you picture a judge uh, with someone who's being tried for some crime that they've committed, and if the judge follows the letter of the law that would actually lead to injustice, the judge would be reasonable and say, okay, instead of doing this sentence, we'll impose a lighter sentence. So that's the picture that we're given. That's one way that this word is used. Another way that this word is used was to signify someone who is humble and patient in the face of injustice, of mistreatment, um, even of disgrace, bearing all things without hatred or malice toward others due to uh, an abiding trust in God. And so, of course, when I say that, your mind probably, if you're familiar with the story of Christianity, goes straight to Jesus. Because the perfect example of this reasonableness that Paul is talking about is Jesus, who in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul describes using the same word when he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's the same word. Let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known. This is the same Jesus who told us to turn the other cheek. And this Jesus, we know, is not a pushover. Instead, this Jesus is one who demonstrates most clearly what it means to rejoice in the Lord, to draw close to other people in such a way that it makes it clear that the person in front of you is your priority. The person in front of you is more important than yourself right now. 
Picture Jesus gently, lovingly, patiently, but firmly engaging with Nicodemus, with the Samaritan adulteress, with the unrighteous tax collector Zacchaeus, with Pontius Pilate who handed him over to death. Picture Jesus patiently, gently, lovingly, but firmly engaging with and teaching his disciples for three years. In humility, count others more significant than yourself, Paul wrote in Philippians 2. There's a sense of contentment with one's state, even in the face of injustice. That can be your abiding reality because God is with you and he has all things together in his hand. Let your reasonableness be known. And again, Paul gives these superlative phrases. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, but both inside the church and Perhaps especially, I take that back, both are important, both inside the church and outside the church. To those outside the church, it is particularly important to be reasonable toward one another as Christians because we put on display the kind of love that God has loved us with. Picture a family with a harsh parent or or brothers and sisters whose relationships are marked by harshness. Is that a kind of family that you look in on and say, oh, I want to be a part of that family? The family of God, the church, throughout scripture, uh, at its best moments, and throughout history, is a family that anyone would want to be a part of. Anyone should be able to look in and say, that is a reasonable people. And I am surrounded by unreasonableness all over the place. I want to be a part of that family. And the question is, as we consider today's moment, is that especially when you think about where people in the world probably see Christians interacting with one another most, which would be online. Is that the characteristic quality of our relationship with one another? Is reasonableness your characteristic quality as you engage with those around you, whether they agree with you? Not just, and I'm not talking about when they agree with you, I'm talking about when they disagree with you. Too often, all of us fall to the temptation to be harsh and impatient. And why is that? Let's read on. Paul's talking about joy in the Lord, being reasonable with one another and with all. And then it's as if he grinds to a halt because there's a problem that needs to be addressed. He says, rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he says this, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul's talking about rejoicing, he's talking about being reasonable, and then he realizes that reasonableness and joy are not the characteristic realities at the moment for the Philippian church. These things are not happening as they should. And why? What gets in the way of these things? Anxiety. I mentioned earlier that we're in an anxiety-saturated culture. It's a word that means a lot of things today. The context helps us here. Paul is talking about rejoicing and being reasonable, being marked. He goes on to talk about being marked by prayerful trust and thanksgiving. These are examples of things that are not present when a particular kind of anxiety comes. The anxiety that Paul is talking about is, to quote one commentator, that unreasonable anxiety which arises in one who is full of cares, especially about the future, and thus distracted in mind. 
So this kind of anxiety often comes through looking to something other than the Lord for joy. Here's the thing. All other sources of joy are fleeting. Picture buying a new car. It's an easy example. You buy a new car, it's got all the latest and greatest features, especially the safety features, and you are really glad that you have that car. And then what happens the next year? They come out with another car. It's got another feature that yours doesn't have. Okay, one year's fine. Then the second year passes. You start getting stressed. And then that is the kind of anxiety. This is, that's a kind of a, almost a silly example, but you get my point. Picture getting a raise this year and being grateful for that. What about if your joy is in that? What happens next year? Picture getting an alarm system installed in your home for safety. And then what happens when someone, you hear about someone getting broken into who has that very same alarm system? Again, getting new things, getting a raise, pursuing safety and protection, these are not bad things. By no means. But if they are your source of comfort and joy, that is a recipe for anxiety. And anxiety affects every part of your life, both inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, it affects you. It affects, it attacks your joy. Anxiety suffocates your joy. It also affects your relationships. Rather than engaging reasonably and gently with those around you, an anxious presence is a presence that leads to conflict and division. Whether that conflict is demonstrated outwardly or offensively, or whether that conflict is demonstrated by retreating, someone retreating and coming becoming closed off. So Paul says, don't be anxious. Even more than that, he says, don't be anxious, again, about anything. There are no exceptions. Those who are in Christ have no need to worry about anything. Instead of being anxious, Paul gives them what to do with their concerns. Now, let me paint a little picture for you. I watched a, I was, this was shared a couple months ago with me. Um, Dodge shared with me a video from uh, a comedy group that talks about a counselor. The scene is this counselor. Um, it's played by Bob Newhart, if you know who that is. Uh, and so he's a counselor. He says, come see me. You know, my, this woman comes in for her first session. He says, okay, this is... Let me tell you what this is going to be. Um, my, my fee is $5. Uh, and it, the sessions last five minutes. And if you do as I tell you, I promise you that your life will be better. Your problem will be solved. And usually, people don't even take the full five minutes. But it'll still be the $5. So it's just kind of setting up the scene. And then this woman kind of pours out her heart. She says, oh, I'm struggling with this. I'm worrying about this. He says, okay. Is that it? Okay. I have two words for you. If you do exactly what I say, if you remember these two words, your problem's going to go away. Stop it. And she kind of says back. She says, I'm worried about this. This is, stop it. But what about this thing? I'm, I'm also concerned about this. Stop it. <laughs> of course, you get the picture. The joke, of course, is that if she was able to listen to him, it would have been better. Right? But that's just not how those anxieties work. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's not looking at the anxieties of the people and just saying, stop it. Listen to how Paul says it. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
Paul doesn't just say, stop being anxious, period, moving on. He says, here's what you do with those things that are troubling you. Here's the thing, the Philippians had plenty of reasons to worry. Probably far more than many of us in this room. They were threatened by quarrels from within the church. They were threatened by real enemies from without. When the Apostle Paul uses the peace of God guarding their hearts and minds, that image of guarding is something that was real for the Philippians because they were under threat of physical attack. Paul's looking at them with love and saying, your concerns are real. Don't pretend that they're not. But he speaks a word of loving correction. If your concerns are leading to anxiety, then that means that your mind, Christian, might be fitting your concerns into the context of an inner world that may or may not be tethered to reality. Do you notice how he does this? Do you notice how he corrects that? Notice what he says just before, do not be anxious. He says, the Lord is at hand. The most important thing when facing anxieties is to ground yourself in reality. And the most important reality for the Apostle Paul, according to the Apostle Paul, for every person, is that the Lord is at hand. This is the first word of assurance in the passage. God, Paul tells the Philippians, is here. God is with you. Throughout his writings, certainly throughout the book of Philippians, the nearness of Jesus is central for Paul. Jesus had promised to be with us until the end of the age when he gave the Great Commission. And Paul says he abides in us by his spirit. He is with us to guide us and to bless us. This is the ultimate foundation for reality. I am not a trained, I'm not a certified counselor. I'm not a mental health professional. I do know, however, that one of the best things a counselor can do is situate a person in reality. I read a book recently that was describing cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. And what it is, essentially, as it was described in this book by these two uh, psychologists, is CBT is a set of strategies that help a person ground themselves in reality and practice reminding themselves, this is not true, this is true. This is not true, this is true. Forgive me if that is an oversimplification. Um, I am not a counselor. However, I do know that the most important thing a counselor can do is ground someone in reality. And what does Paul do here? He grounds them in the midst of their anxieties in reality. The Lord is at hand. God has it all. God loves you. On account of that, all is well with you and with the world. The Lord is at hand. Within this context, the antidote to anxiety like this for Paul, is specific petitionary prayer with thanksgiving. He doesn't simply say, don't be anxious, and then leave it at that. He doesn't avoid pain. He says, look at it. Understand it. Name it. And bring it before your God who cares for you. Now, one of the things that I'm very grateful for in the world of social science, in the world of psychology, is that you have a lot of people who are very well trained at helping people understand and name things that they were not previously able to understand and name about themselves. And the most important thing, Christian, is to be able to take those things that are concerns for you, describe them specifically and accurately, and bring them before God and entrust them to him. As a parent, I love my kids. 
Um, when my kids are concerned about things, which often happens, they're concerned about things that I don't find to be concerning. And I have a couple of options. Right? I could be a just stop it parent. Stop it. Stop worrying. Why? Because I said so. And I'm your dad, and I know more than you. I don't want to explain it right. You know, you know I could, I could, that could be my, that could be my MO as a parent. Admittedly, unfortunately, sometimes that is what I default to. But God never does that. God is patient and kind. He is gentle and lowly. He is near to the brokenhearted. And he listens. Do you know God like that? To speak for a moment about specificity in prayer, I think this bears pausing on. Paul says, take your concerns and entrust them to God. Um, as you learn how to pray, you often start with general feelings. God, help me not be stressed. But then, as God continues to cultivate maturity in us, as we learn from one another, as we see a specific prayer modeled in the life of the church, our prayers can develop to more specific things. God, help me not to worry so much about my job. And then perhaps even God... Help me to trust that whether or not I lose this job, you've got me. It's similar with confession of sin. Man, I just need to confess that I've been angry. That's a great way to start. And then hopefully that can develop into, I am angry at my boss. Even better, brother, I need to confess to you that I was out of anger to my boss. I spoke harshly and I stormed away. Brother, I need to confess to you that I sped up in anger and I didn't let the person in the lane in front of me because I was thinking of myself and not of that person. Specific sins are what we're called to confess because those are the things that God wants us to hear specific words of forgiveness over. Yes, I heard you and I forgive you. Similar with our concerns. Uh, God, help me not to be anxious. God, please help me not to be anxious. That is a wonderful prayer. And you can, oftentimes, though, I've found in my experience that that doesn't work just repeating that over and over again. What actually is helpful is saying very specific things that I'm actually anxious about. God, it happened again when I opened the news and saw violence. God, please help me to trust that you have my life in your hand, that all is well, that no matter what happens to me, you've got me. Help me to rejoice in you and your real provision for me here and now and help me to set my mind on those things rather than this hypothetical scenario that I keep worrying about. Just give me 20 minutes of not worrying about that and just thinking about you and your provision for me. Praying about things specifically is how we cast our cares upon the Lord. It's how we both acknowledge and experience total dependence on God. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, bring it before God. There's a, um, and to do so with thanksgiving further helps us ground ourselves in God who has provided for us all things in Christ. There's, I have a, uh, the director of my seminary a few years ago used to, you know, when you asked him how he was doing, he would always answer, better than I deserve. How you doing, Tim? Better than I deserve. And it, it's a trite thing, but I asked him about it once. I said, oh, you always say that, Tim. He said, I do, because I'm an anxious person. 
sometimes it is just a habit, and I don't even think about what I'm saying, but sometimes God slows me down. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's, it was a grounding in reality for him. That's how he described it. Every time someone asked him how he's doing, better than I deserve. Reminded of him, him of what, what is ultimately true, so that he can then engage in an honest answer in the context of what is true about him. What happens when we entrust things to God? Verse 7, peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we entrust things to God, Paul tells us the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Is this the peace of, man, when I pray, I really got it figured out? No. Is it the peace of finally, gosh, finally I have better circumstances? No. It's the peace of God. It is an otherworldly peace. A peace that surpasses all of our understanding, which sometimes defies explanation. I remember very vividly, I'm a person, a Christian who remembers not believing in God. I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. I remember going from not having peace to having peace. And I only really understood that in hindsight. St. Augustine, there's a famous quote. St. Augustine, the 4th century uh, 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 theologian, uh, philosopher, said, Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. I remember going from not being at rest to being at rest to being at peace in God. If you've never smelled a rose, the challenge is, if you've never smelled a rose, I can describe, we can describe to you things about the smell, but until you actually smell it yourself, you won't understand it. And even when you do, there's been a lot of poetry about roses that don't sound like they understand all the inner, inner, you know, inner workings of what it means that a rose is a rose. It's just like, it's, that's it. That's kind of like how Paul talks about this peace of God. It surpasses understanding. You don't know it until you have it. And when you have it, you still probably have a hard time knowing it. So I just want you to come know Jesus because he's the one who can give you this peace. In the words of one writer, God's peace transcends our intellectual powers precisely because believers experience it when it is unexpected, in circumstances that make it appear impossible. This is what the peace of God is like. It guards our hearts and minds when all else is screaming, be anxious, be worried, get worked up. But we're not. It defies explanation. But that is the peace of God. It comes from knowing that God has got you. From not just understanding the idea of, but experiencing the nearness of God. And knowing that the Lord is at hand. Because the bad news is that you will endure violence and suffering in your life. Your body will go through hell, as it were. Whether through physical injury, assault by another person, being beaten, mocked, thrown in prison, perhaps executed. These were real dangers for Paul. And I've heard awful stories of present-day suffering and pain and experiences that people have been through. The peace is in knowing that God is with you, that God will preserve you through it all, and that he is able to deliver you and ultimately heal everything about you that has been broken. It defies explanation. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like. But the words of Scripture are clear that God is our deliverer and that he will make all things right. So in summary, there's this clear link that the Apostle Paul 
draws between anxiety and quarrels and a failure to pray. When you're anxious, you're not unified with the people around you, and you're not praying and entrusting things to God. So what do we do? Entrust these things to God. Experience the peace that surpasses understanding, which causes you to rejoice in the Lord and to be reasonable with people around you, because all is well. You know that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? That was a hymn that was written after the hymn writer lost his child and his wife. And if you think about the verse, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows as sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's a hymn about rejoicing in the Lord. So what does it look like to do these things as a church? There's really three things that Paul actually points to at the end of this passage, verses 8 and 9. We don't have time to go into them in detail. Paul says three things. What does it look like to actually drink this antidote? Paul lists a number of good things and says, think about these things. He says, practice these things. And he says, help one another. What does it look like, Sojourn? to live into the reality, to drink this antidote that Paul is holding out for us, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. Think about these things, practice these things, and help one another to think intentionally. Uh, Paul goes on, says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That reminds me, we don't have time to go into each of those list items, but it reminds me of Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, be transformed. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What we think about is incredibly important. Thought precedes action. Often thought produces action. That which you reflect upon is that which shapes you. And so, and this is particularly critical in today's world. When you think about all of the people who are asking for your attention, to whom are you giving your attention? And perhaps the question that Paul asks us here is, to what are you giving your attention? Are you, what, what things are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the good, the pure, that which is worthy of praise? Or are you thinking about other things? Sojourn, let us be a people who intentionally think about the good. Secondly, practice these things. Paul goes on to say this. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace. There again, the God of peace. Not only will the peace of God guard you, but how does that happen? It's that the God of peace will give himself to you. And the second encouragement that Paul says is practice these things. Not just in the mind. The mind is important. So think about these things and practice these things. This is also critical in today's world. Paul essentially says, follow me as I follow Christ, which he says elsewhere. That's what he's saying here. He said, you've seen me demonstrate these things. What are you practicing, Philippian church? Follow my example. Follow the example of those in your church, as Paul has said about Epaphroditus a couple of weeks ago. Practice these things. Are we practicing reasonableness? Or are we practicing impatience? Practice these things. And then finally, help one another to do this. The key idea that Paul is getting at here, coming out of the context of this conflict between Eudea and Setuche, he says, help them agree. 
The key idea is that if there is something in your life and around you that is not as it should be, you have been made an agent of reconciliation. You have been made an agent of hope, of repair, of change. What does it look like to help one another agree, to help someone who is anxious? Other than looking, coming to that person, it's not complicated. If someone in your midst around you is anxious, you go say, have you brought that to the Lord yet? Can I do that with you? Help one another. To ask a question, um, you know how you'll make it worse if you see someone in your uh, someone in your midst who is having a hard time, who's struggling with anxiety, who's experiencing disunity. You know how, how you make it worse. Lead with your anxieties. Instead, what if you went and said, "Hey, let's bring this together before the Lord. Let's rejoice in the Lord." Let's take some time to give thanks for how good God is and make sure we get to Jesus and give him thanks for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, uh, throughout the scriptures, has been about giving us his peace, his shalom. The testimony of the whole Bible is that God wants us to be at peace. There was peace in the garden. That peace was lost, and God has given his people taste after taste of peace all the way through the story of the Bible, and then ultimately in Christ. Remember one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 14? What does he leave with his disciples? Peace. Peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give. I give you peace. It's throughout the Bible. Christ is the sum of all of the promises of blessing and peace. He is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. God's saying, may the Lord bless his people with peace. Peace be to you. These scriptures throughout the Old Testament all point to Christ. God will be with you. This is what God has intended all along. The God of peace. Who created things at peace. That peace was disturbed by sin. But then he sent Jesus to secure and share that peace once again. So, soldier, may we be a people who live into the peace of Christ, who are not anxious about anything, but in everything, we are learning and practicing and trusting all of those things to God, who loves us because he's a good God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this morning, so grateful for this time, so grateful for your word. Please give us yourself. It's one thing to learn about the peace of God. It's a whole other thing to experience it. I pray for every man, woman, and child in this room, Lord. I don't know all of their stories, but you do. You know everything about every life, every thought, every desire, every anxiety in this room. I pray that you would give us a taste of your peace. As we prepare to come to the table and enjoy this communion meal together with one another and with you, I pray that you would give us peace. Not as the world is giving to us and trying to sell to us. That you would give us a taste of your peace that would be real to us, through which we can experience your love and through which we can share your love with those around us. Help us to be people who rejoice. Help us to be reasonable. Help us to entrust things to you with confidence and courage. Most of all, help us to enjoy your peace. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.